Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Today's episode is a little bit different to the usual, as it's not an interview per se. It is instead Dr. Cornelius Berthold, who is a well-known historical fencing instructor in Germany, who works a lot with Roland Warczyka, who you've probably heard on this show before. He contacted me because he's doing a series of videos on YouTube on the topic of tempo, and he has some questions about Capaferro's uses of the term. And so rather than just email back and forth in a tedious manner, or even just get on a call and chat about it for a bit, and that would be that, I thought, well, why don't we set it up as a podcast recording so that you guys could listen in on two absolute tempo geeks geeking out about tempo. So you won't hear the usual questions. This is just Dr. Cornelius Bertolt and Dr. Guy Windsor geeking on about tempo. Um, we don't know each other, we've never met, and this is our first interaction, so as you might expect, it starts out a little bit um, sort of cautious and perhaps even a little clunky as we sort of get to know each other and figure out what the other needs out of the conversation. But bear with it, it warms up and we go deep into the tempo weeds and in the manner that any historical martial artist is likely to enjoy. So, without further ado... Dr. Cornelius Berthold, welcome to the show. Okay, so what is it about Capoferro's tempo that, um, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I mean, I started with this, this video series, um, where mm -hmm. I say, okay, and when we talk about tempo or timing issues in martial arts or in fencing, we have very simple stuff, like for instance, the opponent raises their weapons and you go in with a thrust in that moment. So this uh, simultaneous action. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty easy. And most of us have experienced that. But then if you have only this like basic idea about it and you tackle a couple of Pharaoh and he says stuff like, uh, the motion of my adversary with his blade measures the stillness of the point of my sword. This <laughs> yes. reads a bit wacky at first, a bit, bit, um, yeah. bit fuzzy or where it's really bad to, to, to come to grips with it. And um, so I made a video where I tried to unravel this and try to um, get behind the, let's say, the terminologies of individual systems that each have like their own ideas of how they define a tempo, how they deal with rhythm or simultaneous actions, consecutive actions, and so on. And so find out why we have these terminologies and these systems in the first place. And... Um, in a way, I promise to uh, sort of explain what Capoferro means with these uh, apparently very cryptic descriptions. Okay. And for this, I mean, uh, uh, at this point, I've basically finished uh, the second video and I thought, okay, now I have to sort of squeeze in a short section of uh, to finally explain this because um, I had promised it. And I think I think I got the gist of it. And um, so my take on this would be, um, he explains tempo is something that happens uh, either when someone is moving or when someone uh, is still. Probably not when both are still, but um, 
until that point, this is pretty much what you find in other uh, Italian uh, Renaissance um, repair books about how they define this basic unit tempo. H- have you read Vigiani, Lo Scaramo? Uh, Vigiani, not. Okay. Um, to, uh, to get to grips with how Capoferro is describing tempo, it really helps to have read Vigiani because in it, he makes it absolutely explicit uh, that the idea, the kind of the, the form, the framework is coming from Aristotle's books, Physics 7 and 8, in which um, a basically time is measured by motion and the body is either at rest or is in motion. And you measure the time between two units of rest. So you have the body is at rest, then it moves, then it rests again. And that movement is the measurement of time. It's like maybe a pendulum with a sort of pause at the end of each swing. Okay. And so that's where the idea of it being measurements of motion and stillness come from. And where Vijani gets how he explains how guards and blows relate. So a guard is a moment of stillness and a blow is a motion between two moments of stillness. And so as Vijani says, between two guards lies a blow and between two blows lies a guard. Okay, so that's like the foundation behind what Cabafaro is talking about. Yeah, this is the um, also the reason why I assume that, I mean, in theory, if you have both fences that are resting, then you have no effective tempo that is happening. Precisely. I mean, so. they basically, to my mind, and again, we're talking about an Italian word, which has multiple meanings when you translate them into English. Okay, one of them is rhythm, which you said before. Another one is time, absolutely. Um, but it is not unreasonable to translate tempo in some places in Capoferro as a motion done in measure and also as an opportunity to strike. So there is a tempo means there is an opportunity to strike. And um, there is no tempo out of measure. So as soon as you're outside of measure, motions do not are not tempi because you can't take advantage of them. Okay. So when you look at it like that, a lot of his explanations become a lot more straightforward. It's actually quite interesting that, uh, things Salvatore Fabris is the one who explains that it's called tempo, like a time, because it's actually referring to a duration, to the duration of an action. And, right. um. Although Cabaferro explicitly contradicts that. He explicitly says it doesn't matter how long it is in real time. So long as if my, if my opponent is standing still and I am in measure and I strike in the, if you remain still within that time, right? Then my motion is done in time, in measure. Sorry, my motion is done in tempo, right? So, I mean, he, he is, let me, let me see if I can find the, I'm using, um, Tom Leone's translation. Yeah, I never get a hold of it. I have the, one of the free ones. Uh, uh, yeah, you've got, least. you're using Swanger and Wilson, aren't you? Uh, exactly, that yeah. one. Or the, the neatly formatted version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on. Let, on. let me just dig that up on my screen because I, I do have it, of course. Ooh. My computer needs restarting, I think. But we're not going to do that. Ah, here we go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 
Okay. So this is this is uh, paragraph fifty. In exactly, this way where he starts talking about tempo. Yeah. Um, okay. Chiefly, it signifies a just. This is the Swango Wilson translation. Chiefly, it signifies a just length of motion or of stillness that I need in order to reach a definite end for some plan of mine, without considering the length or shortness of that tempo. Only that I finally arrive at that end. Right. So yeah. he is explicitly not talking about a certain number of objectively measured seconds or minutes, or they didn't have milliseconds back then, but you get the idea. Right. It's explicitly in relation to my opponent's actions. So if my strike arrives before the parry, my strike was done in time, whether it took seven minutes to do or whether it took, I don't know, three tenths of a second. Uh, that is correct, but I thought. Uh, I don't think there's any disagreement to, to Fabris here because, I mean, he explains sure. that the, the word itself comes from a duration. So yeah. he doesn't say it is an absolute duration uh, either. So he also ties okay. it to uh, the kind of motion you do. And there is there is this interesting and not always, uh, I believe, um, solved discrepancy between explaining tempo first as like uh, defining like the beginning and end of, of a motion that I do. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, um, correlating that to what my opponent does. So basically, it's defined in, in a subjective way sometimes to say, okay, um, it and, is it is subjective, yeah. And uh, on the other hand, what actually matters in in a fight is that how um, enough how my opponent can exploit it. So and I call this or as a way to to to, to tackle this, um, I introduce these these concepts of having like. A, the subjective idea of a tempo, so, so how long I take for a certain action. So mm-hmm. because of my, the biomechanics I use, the weapon I'm using, the, the kind of motion, of weapon movement, for instance, it is. And what my opponent can do, do in the same time. So we actually have this um, uh, phenomena, you can be stuck in a very long action, which is just one um, single movement to yourself. But if the opponent is able to do like two quick separate movements in the same time, then you have the problem of subjectively you have one tempo, but objectively and what matters in a fight, um, it could be um, two tempi. And this is what, what Fabulous does with this um, like special kind of lunge. Sure. So, I mean, Kevin Ferro talks about there are tempi of your motions, like the half tempo, which is the strike to the sword arm, the single tempo, which is the lunge of the fixed foot, and then what he calls a tempo and a half, which is what we would think of as a normal lunge with the, the front foot is moving. And I think Capoferro is unique in using tempi that way, because theoretically, according to his own definitions, if a lunge is done in one motion, it is a single tempo, right? But he calls it a tempo and a half, basically when he's talking about your subjective motions, not when he's talking about your motions in relation to your opponent. Right. And there are several places in the practical section of the book where he says, and you strike him with a, um, the increase of the foot, i.e. with a, what we would think of a lunge or with the fixed foot, either way. Um, so in other words, in that tempo that your opponent has given you, you have time to do either your one tempo lean, as I call it, or the one and a half tempo lunge. And you do the one that you need to do to get the job done. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, so yeah, you're right. There is this distinction between, um, 
movements I do that are measured only in relation in relation to themselves, and movements that I do that are measured only in relation to my opponent's actions. And the interesting thing is, Fabris does have a like two tempi lunch, as I've coined it, um, but, but we can talk about that later. The, the interesting thing about Capoferro and uh, how I think I now understand it, and um, you, as, as an expert on Capoferro, you, you're probably able to correct me then if I'm totally off. But um, this is idea of um, he poses this example. So, so I'm approaching the opponent, and I think I'm trying to get into a narrow measure. That's the example he uses, mm-hmm. and my opponent fixes himself, so he's resting, yeah. he does nothing, well, and I go still, forward. Yeah. And, and this is where he uses this example. So um, uh, with this resting body, the um, opponent measures the um, my approach, uh, the point of my soul that is moving forward. And it makes sense to me, if you really understand it as, um, in, this is one tempo, as long as they are resting and I'm moving, this is one tempo, as soon as they start to do something, this tempo has to end. And in this sense, um, their resting body has measured my coming forward, and now it has ended. And if I now continue moving forward, I have the problem that uh, if they react to what I'm doing, so which is the reason why they, they are not resting anymore, now there's the chance that they do something that I cannot react to if I just continue with whatever I was doing. So, and so the, 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 the end of the resting period, basically, is the interesting thing because he says, okay, my tempo of moving forward has to end there as well. And then it's a just tempo. So because of these two tempi line up, basically. And, um, if theirs end and, uh, they start to do something, I have to end my tempo too and have to adjust to whatever they're doing. And this is how I interpret this, um, well, relatively cryptic sounding, uh, statement. So it's, um, I think it's a way of expressing that tempi uh, actually, I have a problem with this uh, theory. Uh, Farpus does the same thing. Uh, but they have this theory that Tempi have to line up. So I only can use so much time as the opponent is giving me. And if right. one of them is like has ended, um, the other has to end as well. And then you do something else um, for it to, to make sense and for it to be martially reasonable. Right. Um, th- thing to remember about Capoferro is that he is not the clearest writer in the world, right? He really isn't. And honestly, I, I would have to say he's probably not the clearest thinker in the world either. Um, so it's tempting to get kind of sucked into this um, sort of theoretical implications of what he may have meant. What he actually says is relatively straightforward. If my opponent is standing still and I take that tempo in which to strike them, right? If they start moving during my tempo, in other words, during my attack, then I'm going to have to do something else, right? And when you explain that to, you know, class full of fences, it's perfectly straightforward and obvious, right? Um, it's when he phrases it in this sort of long and complicated way that it becomes a little bit obscure. But I yeah. think that's the phrasing, not the idea behind the phrasing. Yeah. But there was uh, the, the nice challenge, I thought, like, so that there must be something behind the phrasing. I, I would think, and, and I probably you agree, it would be totally cheap to just dismiss it as like overly oh, no, convoluted. No, 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 no. Okay. Tell you, um, can you, can you dig up the exact, um, passage 
And I will also dig up my scans of Capofero and I will make sure that the translation is correct. And then I will, because, hang on, I, need, I should have got this ready before, but I didn't. Oh, no, no, there's um, a problem. Well, I, 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 think uh, it, I think it sort of makes sense to me now. So, so it's, um, there's nothing. I mean, there was one um, section in the Swanger translation where I wasn't really sure about the, the phrasing in, in English. Um, yeah, if, if we stay like in the first half of paragraph 50 or section 50. Okay, yeah. So there's uh, where you have this example, and I'm just going to read it out loud. So we pose the example that I move myself to seek the measure and that I go very slowly to find it. So that's this point saying, okay, it doesn't matter how much speed actually is, is, is involved. Yeah. So it's just about like beginning and end and what the opponent does. And that my adversary is as much fixed of body so that I find it. So mm -hmm. so that I find it probably meaning this, he is fixed with his body until I have found it. So until uh, I have ended uh, my... No, no, no. No, he he is moving himself to seek the measure, and he goes mm. slowly to find the measure, and his adversary is as much fixed of body that I find the measure. Okay. Um, yes, but but meaning so the yeah. process of finding the measure is like so when it, this is finished, um, um, the um, the adversary must not have moved. That's right. Yeah. Period. So okay. so okay. the adversary basically stands still while you get into measure, which yeah. people do all the time. Okay. So that, that's clear enough so far. So it continues. Yeah. And, it can, and then, then he basically gives this explanation that we already discussed. So, um. Yeah. Although I've uh, arrived somewhat late, nonetheless, not at all can it jeopardize my plan because I have arrived in tempo, considering that as much the length of time as I am myself in motion, precisely so much have my adversary fixed himself. Yeah. So basically, this is a complicated way of saying my opponent stands still and I walk towards them until I am in measure and they stay still right until the point where I am in measure. So their standing still is equal to the length of time that I took to get into measure. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I say exactly. And I think that's, um, in this respect, he doesn't get any more complicated than that. I mean, he does give the examples that you already mentioned of like the one and a half tempi and the um, one tempo and so on. Yeah, that's later on though. Getting, getting closer to the opponent. And then, then he yeah. takes up this um, stillness in motion example once again in mm -hmm. paragraph 53. And yeah. um, where you almost have basically the, the, the same example a second time. Yeah. And... Um, because again, Camaferro is definitely of the opinion that if it's worth saying once, it's probably worth saying three times. <laughs> don't get me wrong, I love him. I, I, it's, it's one of my favorite treatises of them all. Um, but one of the things I like about it is he's a somewhat kind of quirky and indirect writer sometimes. Well, what I actually find very likable about him is this concept, um, if I understood it correctly, because it's not the main source I'm working with for, for Italian rapier. But that, that he is aware of, if you have a theory of where, where things move, uh, work in a certain way because like everyone is doing the right thing. Yep. And which also means like certain things cannot work. Like faints, yep. for instance, a faint is a motion and it's a temple. So, so theoretically, they shouldn't be, shouldn't work. Yeah. A, a faint is a motion done in measure and therefore a tempo. And therefore, if my opponent faints, I hit them. And if they're in measure, I just hit them. And of course, I would never fall for a faint because I am a theoretically perfect fencer. 
<laughs> right? But then, of course, throughout the rest of the book, I mean, people bang on about this a lot. It's one of those, oh, Capoferro is an idiot because he says you can't faint and then he shows you a bunch of faints. But no, he's he shows you the theoretically perfect art in which people do not make mistakes. And then he shows you the practice or the practical use in which people do make mistakes and therefore are vulnerable to things like faints. So it's not a contradiction at all. It's, it's, it's the two sides of the coin. It's the, the theory and the practice. And I think that's what I like about him because my, my approach to, to fighting in general is um, relatively systematic. So what I like about is is like coming up with a system of this idea of fighting. I mean, a, a martial arts system is like an idea of how you should fight. So it's very theoretical or ideal in a, uh, anyway in the first place. And so like getting all these categories and uh, things uh, in place and being aware of it and um, having sort of the clarity, at least in your mind, so whatever you do practically is, is, is another uh, cup of tea altogether. But um, so having this in mind is something that I really like. So I'm personal, uh, totally sympathize with this approach, frankly. <laughs> yeah, and it's normal. It's Every fencing system is a rationalization of what actually happens. So people fight and you then take your experience of being involved in that fight or watching that fight. And from that, you work out how it works. And then you take that theory and go, ah, but hang on, if I did this instead, that should work better. And then you apply that to the fight. And sure enough, it works better. Or no, it doesn't actually work better because you didn't take these other things into account. But um, it's, it's, there's a useful definition of art as probably used by people like Fiore up until kind of quite late in Italian history, where art is natural human actions ordered into a system so they can be studied and taught. Right. And so they're always after the fact. They're rationalizations after the fact. So you've got Cavaferro describing this, this theory of tempo and how it works. But we all know that very few people just stand completely still, ever, right? But the thing is, are they standing still enough for that to count as a stillness from Capoferro's point of view? Probably. Uh, or possibly. We don't, well, it depends on the example. But what counts as a movement? Well, their breathing doesn't, necessarily. Because it's just the chest moving up and down. It's a movement done in measure, but it's not a tempo. Right? Uh, unless, of course, you have an opponent who manages to, like, um, exploit your breathing. Right. Well, exactly. <laughs> and there's a wonderful um, description in Josh Waitzkin's book, The Art of Learning, where he's a world-class push-hands player. By world-class, I mean he won the, um, the World Cup in push-hands in his weight division in both the fixed foot and the moving foot. Um, variations. There are basically two kinds of, of push hands, and he won them both on the, at the same competition, which is very unusual. Anyway, he describes exploiting the tempo of a blink, right? Because you're that close, and as their eyes start to close, there is less information going into their brain, mm. and you can do stuff while then their eye kind of readjusts to. The light as the blink ends. He actually, and okay, you, you could say that was bullshit, but actually, I, I have never heard a world class push hands person say that was bullshit. 
right? I've never exploited the tempo of somebody's blink, but at that level of competition, that's certainly not impossible. But I think what Cabaferra is getting on about is a motion done in measure is a tempo if it is sufficiently large that it can be reasonably exploited. Yeah. Right? So, like, you know, twiddling a little finger of your left hand while you're doing single rapey with the right hand doesn't count as a tempo because you can't reasonably exploit it. Yeah, so there's, there's that sort of, even though we have this kind of theory as, as to what exact actions or lack of actions fit into that particular box, um, I think we have a bit of, bit of wiggle room. And, you know, what counts as a tempo to a really experienced fencer is probably not a tempo to a beginner. Yeah, because they have no hope. Yeah, they have no hope of exploiting such a small action, but a more experienced person does. And this is one of the things that I that has become like like a, like a, like a horse of mine. How do we say in English? Like like a fancy or some um, hobby horse. Hobby horse. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so I could talk about these tempi and timing stuff like for hours. So it's pretty annoying to anyone else, I imagine. <laughs> but um, well, actually, no, yeah, you're, you're you're in the right place because I have nothing else to do today. You carry on. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I, I still got some work to do so later on, but, but it's totally fine to do it now. So, subdividing things, and uh, probably I'm, uh, I'm going to start with asking you about Capoferro's mm -hmm. one and a half tempi, because okay. um, if the idea is that you have like a, a single action is like one tempo, and uh, the opponent could be doing something uh, in that same time frame, for instance, mm -hmm. um, this also implies that as soon as a tempo ends, you adjust, or as soon as you do more than one tempo, um, you have the arresting phase again, because you come to an end with one motion. And preferably, you will um, tailor this in a way that um, you're not in a motion when the opponent does something, but instead, when they do something that could uh, be dangerous to you, you're in a position where you can act and react, preferably in, in a, such a motion of stillness. So um, to, to do a cross-check, um, does Capoferro indicate what you do if something happens in these one and a half tempi, or does he just like assume that you only do like one and a half tempi actions if the opponent is giving you like more than one tempo to act in? Or does he give okay. the example that you can do something, you can start like one and a half tempi action and the opponent does something and in the middle you change plans, which of course means that, um, the whole thing you did was not like one long tempo, but it was subdivided. Okay, I don't think that there is any reasonable subdivision of the lunge, as in the attack with the moving front foot, um, in, in the sense of, yes, okay, he describes it as tempo and a half because it's longer, right? But he's only, in that, in that paragraph, which is, um, oh, yeah, yeah, where are we? Um, Paragraph 51, I believe. Let me just check yeah. that. Yeah, that's um, the one with the... Um, yeah, okay. So, he's yeah, but he's talking about, you know, the extension of my arm is a half tempo, the attack of the fixed foot is a full tempo, and the lunge, because it's longer, is a tempo and a half. But strictly speaking, according to the rules of tempo, all of those are actually just one tempo of varying lengths, Right. Because it is sometimes useful to think about how long a tempo will take or how long a motion will take, he divides it that way. But 
there is nowhere in the book that I've found that he uses a lunge explicitly because it takes more time and therefore you can do other things while you're doing it. Okay. Now in modern fencing with much lighter weapons, there are plenty of examples of, um, for example, with an accelerating lunge doing a faint one, two with a foil, mm. right? And you're doing all of that while the front foot is in the air. Yeah. Okay. That sort of thing is just never done with a rapier. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it can be done in theory, but it's not in any of the sources I've encountered because the weapon is longer and heavier. The lunge tends to be a much shorter motion. Um, even though the, the lunge itself travels as far as it reasonably can, your front foot is only in the air for the shortest possible period of time. With Capaferro, it's different with Fabris. Fabris has a much yeah. longer movement of the front foot. Um, but I think, I think it's useful to separate his half tempo, full tempo, tempo and a half when he's describing your body motions, separate that out from how he's using terms like single tempo, two tempi, and half tempo and contra tempo later on when he's talking about doing things to the opponent. Because right? hmm. you certainly, I mean, he only lunges when he has a tempo in which to strike. And there is no indication anywhere in the book that you have a special extra big tempo in which you do a lunge. Because most of the actions are done with some kind of moving forward, for, for instance, and the foot is either fixed or it's not. I mean, if I if I remember correctly, most examples he gives are when the opponent lunges, and this automatically means that you have time for a lunge yourself. Right. Uh, if I remember that correctly. Yeah, I mean, the general pattern of the book is your opponent is in guard, you string them on one side or the other, forcing them to act in a certain way, and that action is usually to attack by disengage. And when they attack by disengage, you counter it with your prepared counter, which is usually done in a single tempo. Um, I mean, he talks about in play seven. So you string her on the inside. So in Quartha, they uh, disengage and attack over your arm and you parry and riposte in one single motion in un solo tempo. You parry and riposte in a single motion, um, to strike them through the left eye. But if they had been a clever person, they would have disengaged by way of a feint. And as you came to strike, they would parry and riposte in two tempi. Hmm. Right? So because they're already committed to a motion, they're disengaged with their feint. As you act, you are, you can't counterattack into that action. You have to then parry and riposte in two tempi. Um, yeah, because the disengage itself would be too short as a motion for a full right. like thrust. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so his, his explanation then of like his, his primo tempo is you're in measure and you strike. His due tempi, two tempi is you do two actions and he never goes further. I mean, some fencing sequences are a lot more than two actions, but he never defines anything as more than two actions. Um, the half tempo is just when your opponent's coming forward and you stab him in the arm as you step back, right? Which is again, is Capaferro being, shall we say, um, idiosyncratic in his use of terminology? Because for Vigiani, a half tempo is a half blow. So instead of it going from, for example, um, second ward down to third, it stops in, is it fifth? I need to revise my Vigiani, obviously, because I can't remember which <laughs> his numberings for the guards. But the point is, if it comes from above your right shoulder to down to your left hip, if you stop in the middle, 
there is a separate guard, but the blow, the half blow that goes from above the shoulder to the middle is called a half tempo. Hmm. Um, and Vadi uses the term differently too. Right? So it's, it's, it's not unusual for there to be sort of variations to how, particularly, particularly meta tempo. For some reason, meta tempo is the one that everyone does differently. Hmm. Pretty much everybody agrees on what a tempo is. But half tempo is that kind of, you know, the bastard stepchild <laughs> that gets, that gets fiddled about with by, you know, by whoever's writing the book. It actually um, reminds me of this, uh, I think there's a, a like, like a little joke or a riddle thing you do with children uh, when you say, okay, a, a man needs like two hours to dig a hole. How many hours will he need to dig half a hole? So, right. Rolling around this absurd idea that half a hole is not a hole for the <laughs> right uh, for the matter. So <laughs> is, if I mean, exactly it, yeah. half a blow, I mean it's also a tempo. It's like a shorter tempo, but it's still right. a tempo. Yeah. So so the 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 phrasing can catch you out at that point because we as kind of modern people with scientific training and what have you, we like. We like a word when, when you're writing an explanatory text, we like a single word to mean a single thing and only that thing. Right. But like half tempo can mean several different things. Tempo means several different things. Yeah. And they, Capoeira was not writing at a time where that sort of level of absolute consistency would be expected. Although I, I would give him credit for, for being aware of it, because ex uh, especially in this, like, uh, paragraph 51, where he's making this division between, like, half a tempo, mm -hmm. one tempo, one and a half tempo, he is talking about uh, right at the beginning that this concerns, like, um, understanding tempo as the, in a sense of quickness. Yeah. So not, not just like right. the, this abstract idea of, like, the, everything between beginning and end of a single motion, but he, he he's aware right. of that. In, in that sense, yes, he's, he's talking about tempo. As in the tempo of a piece of music, how fast is it played? Sort yeah. of, sort of absolute, not not entirely just relative. But. Yeah, well, I like modern modern tempo in music usually has a beats per minute like typed yeah. out on, on top of the stage. So it's like you you set your metronome, and that will tell you exactly how fast that composer or that arranger wants you to play that bit of music. Yeah, right. Um, they didn't do it quite that way back in the day. Um, actually, I really ought to get um, Andrew Lawrence King onto my podcast to talk about tempo because he's a Baroque and historical harpist. Okay. And, you know, like seriously into the academic side of it. He is a professor with a PhD and all that kind of stuff. And he's also seriously into the playing side of it because he's actually a professional musician who goes around the world giving concerts. And that's how he actually makes his living. So... But he has gone into insane depths. <laughs> he's one of, he's one of us. He's one of us. He can literally talk about, um, rhythm in, in, say, I don't know, 16th century music. He can talk about it for an hour straight without drawing breath. Mm -hmm. And, and it's entirely listenable to him. It's entirely interesting and it's entirely kind of coherent and consistent. So yeah, I, sh I should, or maybe I should also introduce you because, You know, the two of you could have a chat about tempo. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, um, one of my colleagues is a um, musicologist, I think, like music okay. historian, more working with the Italian Trecento music. So like mm -hmm. 
a bit of what Fiore de Liberi might have uh, listened to. Fantastic. And um, yeah, but I think uh, this, um, I, I actually don't know what the, the uh, English term is like, this historically informed um, uh, musical practice and so on. Yeah. Which, which is like it's historically informed performance or historically informed practice. So it's yes, something like that, yeah. Yeah. And because in, in terms of methodology, they're pretty close to what we do. So they have this yeah, sort of absolutely. elusive goal or a subject that they're studying. They have sources that could be considered incomplete by um, today's standards. And then they have to um, analyze them, analyze the language, yeah. make cross-checks, uh, compare with different sources, have the problem of how much can I take from another source if I don't have anything to fill the gaps in my own source, um, yeah. and how far is this feasible when it is dangerous. And they have like a 20 years head start or something <laughs> compared <laughs> ah, to the Hebrew ah, community. Ah, hang on, hang on, hang on a second though. Um, I need to find my PhD because if I remember rightly, I got a quote from Andrew basically saying that we do it better than they do. <laughs> um, because, uh, yeah, he, he says something about, um, Andrew says something about um, how the way we go about it in our, in historical martial arts is a lot more systematic and formalized than he says the historical, historically informed practice folk do it. Um, um, I probably should, shouldn't spend time leafing through this wretched thing. But you know, it's like as soon as you've written something and published it and got it out, you just forget absolutely everything about it. <laughs> it's like, it's like. But, but this um, is uh, one of the um, uh, academics and uh, like for historical fencing that we have in Germany, Eric Burkhardt, for instance, he wrote a few pieces on like the epistemological problems of like researching uh, lost martial arts and so on and about like not being too comfortable with uh, this idea of, yes, I'm recreating the art of my ancestors and stuff like that. And he has yeah. pointed out that um, even in, in music, for instance, they have become uh, much more careful in how they describe their practice or what, what that is. So like like yeah. a modern idea of doing something, but like very much inspired by research and so on, and not just like reviving or reconstructing something and using these um, sure. very, very... Um, sincere terms, if you will. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, historically inspired music, if you're doing, um, if you're using accurately reproduced instruments and you're doing your best to follow the music as it was written down and you figured out how that notation works and so on, and it sounds like the descriptions of the music that you've read or whatever. I mean, no one, no one has a recording from the 14th century or whatever, but you can probably get pretty close. But anyway, I found the quote from Andrew. Okay. As Professor Andrew Lawrence King wrote in Links to Early Music. I just love this bit, right? So page 43 of the, um, my thesis. As in historically informed performance of music, actions in historical swordsmanship are based on period treatises. Best practice in the teaching and performance of historical swordsmanship is rather ahead of today's early music in evidence-based teaching, in uniting academic theory with practical performance, in the use of historically precise terminology, and in the detailed study of specific sources. I just, ah, that's so cool. And he goes on to say, where early musicians study, say, early 17th century style in general, swordsmanship scholars will base an entire practical method on one specific source, distinguishing between fighting Capoferro style or Fabris style. 
The comparison would be to distinguish between the fundamentals of continuo playing for Caccini and Monteverdi. There we go. Um, so yeah, it's it's not it's nice to know that that um, some academics in the historical music side of things are actually noticing what we're doing and going, ah, actually that's pretty good. It's probably not easy to answer if we have it easier, because um, we could say we have one more criterion that uh, whatever we come up with has to, has like, to work. work marginally. So, but, right. but even even that is a very blurry area uh, between like sure, exactly but it's work. but it's less blurry than does it sound nice or not? E- you know. You know, if I, if, I, if I play my harp like this and I think it sounds wonderful and everyone else thinks it sounds like absolute shit, then it could still be accurate because taste changes. But if every time I do this technique this particular way, I get stabbed in the face, um, then it's probably not exactly what the um, the source intended. Right? We have that sort of objective um, testing ground. So certainly, if you have these like these strong examples, then then absolutely yes. But I think it's more like a question of spectrum and not of a like oh, structurally sure. different. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. It's, it's great that you mentioned Capofero and Fabulous because then I can like say, uh, uh, pull you pull you back in into the lunch discussion. Which has still <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, no, I'm, e- I'm easily distracted. No, no, this is absolutely fine because. Um, uh, are you familiar with this, like, uh, a lunch being too tempy, uh, according to Fabris? Um, uh, does okay. that ring a bell? Honestly, I haven't read Fabris for a while. Do you have this, do you have the source there? Well, somewhere outside, um, but I can summarize it because it's uh, one of my favorite, um, but, okay, um yeah. sections, all, actually. By all means, do summarize it. <laughs> but let me, I assume you're using Tom Yenny's translation? Yeah, exactly. Okay, and so these, um, it, it helps. It helps if I'm looking at the same book because sometimes a word here or there makes all the difference. Yeah, it's the. I think it's a chapter on measures. I think it's it's one where you have on on a double page on the right hand side, lower side. He has like a, a list of points one, two, three. I think it's okay. page four or five, very much at the beginning. Yeah, explanation and, of the two measures, the larger and the stretter, on the way to gain one and the other with little danger. Chapter five. Yeah, and, and then somewhere on the, on the bottom right corner, there should be like a list of three things. Yeah. Let's say, and um, you're perfectly. I mean, if you had said, "I've never heard of like a two tempi lunch in, in Fabris," then uh, this would be perfectly fine because um, it's really, really hard to find any footage of um, rapists from our community who fight according to Fabris who actually do that. So no, you, you, you will you, you will uh, read that he says like um, something like if, if you are in the misura larga, so you know wide measure, and you want to go to 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 close measure or stretta measure, um, and the opponent is resting, the danger is considerable. So this is like uh, Tom Leone's wording, um, and the basic explanation is um, even if you have controlled their blade, you have gained their blade with stringere. Mm-hmm. If you then try to do one of those like cliche classical lunges, um, yeah. like lifting your foot, um, pushing your body forward, and landing, and so on, mm-hmm. and he says that this is actually two tempi. Like lifting the foot is one tempo, and putting it down is another. So when I first read this, I thought this okay is just like rapierists being extra fuzzy and trying to be very precise, and uh, I don't know if this has any relevance for a fight. So the question is, of course. Um, is there a way to 
to check that, to, 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 to come up with an experiment. And if you have someone in white measure, so obviously uh, what exactly white measure is can change a bit depending on, on the persons using it, on the weapons and so on, and then there's always a bit of leeway. For, for our purposes, we're talking you're in measure to strike with a lunge. Um, yeah, basically means like you put your foot forward. If, if you go by the, uh, the images, it's actually not that much. It's like a foot length forward or one and a half foot lengths forward. And then yeah. you lean in with your body and then you work in a way that uh, the tip of your rapier at least exits the opponent's body. Yeah. So it's interesting because at uh, Mikata, okay. for instance, we, for a while we trained with uh, only making contact, but uh, you always have, uh, rather significant penetration lengths. This, this is the thing. This is the hardest thing about rapier fencing to reconstruct, right? In my opinion, yeah. right? What you're supposed to do is run your sword through their body or through their head. So there's like palmol sticking out the back. Yeah. Right. Um, and we just can't do that. Right. Yeah. And so what we basically, I think the compromise we come up with is we use blades that are a little bit too short. Mm. And we hit perhaps a little bit harder than we really should. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And that's, that's kind of where we're compromising. But it, yeah, it is really, really hard to practice in the proper measure. Same as small sword. Small sword has it worse because small sword is fought really close in the books and everyone mm -hmm. fences it like epee and foil really far away. Yeah. Right. Because again, they're going for a touch, not to actually slaughter their opponent. Oh, I, I found your section. Shall I just read it out? Oh, so oh please that, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So this is Tom Yoni's translation of Fabris. So if you are in the Missouri Larga and want to gain the Missouri Strata while the opponent is static in his guard, the danger is considerable. As soon as you lift your foot to move it forward, the opponent may use that as a tempo in which to wound you while pulling back out of danger in the Missouri Larga, thus nullifying any advantage you try to take. The reason for this is that a foot cannot be moved in less than two tempi one to lift it and the other to put it back on the ground. Some, to get around this shortcoming, slide the foot forward without lifting it. This may be easily performed in the sal, but in the street would cause you to stumble on one of the many impediments. Thus, it is better to always lift it carefully, making sure that nothing will trip you up. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the paragraph you're talking about, right? Exactly, and, and he actually yeah. continues to, um, uh, to to give these examples. I think um, mm -hmm. what you can do and what uh, options you have once the foot is in the air. And if you want, you can read that as well because it's actually sure. it, right. so, it's, 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 this is one short section in the introduction to Fabris. So yes. before you have all these hundreds of, of uh, practical plays, and I think he. I'm not sure if he ever comes back to this and, and ties his actual instructions back to this. But I think this is, um, in my opinion, one of the most important uh, parts in his introduction because it says a lot about how he understands certain body movements like foot movements and walk movements. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll just read the rest of that section. If you would be so, kind. <laughs> sure. The safe way to gain the Missouri Strata is to first ensure that you are in a strong counter posture. Then establish the weight of your body upon the left foot, cautiously lifting the right one to move forward. At that point, in other words, you're hovering with the foot in the air. Exactly. If the opponent takes that tempo to strike, you can use the contra-tempo to parry and counter, while the right foot and the body will stretch forth, farther than you, than you had originally intended when you first moved forward. This may even allow you to reach him in case he breaks the measure. Next bullet point. 
If, while you are moving your foot forward as described above, the opponent does not move, you arrive in the Mizura Stratta while keeping your body completely over your left foot so as to maintain it in the same location as before you stepped in from the Mizura Larga. Once you are in this situation, you can strike any opening the opponent offers you with just bending your body forward. At this point, it does not even matter if the opening originates from a slight movement of the opponent or not. And last bullet point. Lastly, if the opponent breaks the measure after you gain the Mizura Stratta, you would still be within the Mizura Larga. You should therefore wound by bending your body and shifting the weight on the outstretched right foot, then retreat by pulling back with both feet one after the other. Okay, thank okay. you. You're welcome. So th this is uh, the crucial point because in a nutshell he says um, a lunge is too tempy. Yeah. So and th this is contrary to, to even what you what you find in Olympic fencing. So, but um, it's a clear manifestation, I think, of this awareness of um, what the opponent does while you move is something that you really have to take into consideration. Yeah. So and the to do a cross check basically he says that. Um, if you gain the opponent's blade mm -hmm. and you're uh, so far away in the Mesona uh, Larga that you just have to move one foot forward, slightly by a foot's length or one and a half foot's length, and then um, lean forward and strike and have like a, a healthy penetration with your blade, so yeah. to speak. And so if Fabris was wrong. It would mean that I can take any fencer and give them this instructions. Okay, if the other one starts lunging at you, you just defend. Right. Because um, the defense might be like one tempo, like just pushing this blade aside, like like a, a, a windscreen wiper, basically. Um, and then you have a bit of reaction time going on. So um, basically, if you have gained someone's blade and they do nothing you should be able to hit if Fabris is wrong. And no, if he's right. No, no. He, uh, if he's wrong about this, then your thrust should be fast enough, like in one tempo, the lunge should be fast enough that you just hit someone whose blade you've already controlled by like having a counter posture. Yeah. And you will find that actually, um, even an unexperienced fighter can displace this lunge easily. So yeah. basically, yeah. So in the, except, uh, except no. Except no, because if you string at the blade properly, they really can't. Okay, up against somebody of my own level, yeah, that's true. But up, if I'm if I'm up against a beginner, if I have if I have control of the blade and I'm close mm -hmm. enough to lunge, according, and I'm a capoeira person, so my mm. my feet are further apart and my front foot is only moving its own length when I'm lunging. In in theory, at least, if yeah. I'm doing it properly, right? There is no way they can re-establish a dominant position on my, or establish a dominant position on my blade strong enough to parry while I'm doing that. And in fact, most advanced fences can't do it either. Because if your initial starting position is sufficiently strong, then the motion that is required to gain control of your opponent's blade actually takes longer than the lunge. Sounds um, counterintuitive, but that's been my experience. The thing is, um, I've experienced exactly the other way around. And uh, one, uh, one explanation, if I just take you up on this, um, like, how, how, how quickly can I move this and that part, uh, example, I would say if I want to display something, I just pull my blade backward to get back into the foible, the weak part of the yeah. opponent's blade, and just push it aside. And actually, I think that 
movement, which is basically just arm movement, is quicker than uh, this lunging forward. It should be. It absolutely should be. But firstly, if your if your position is correctly structured, if my position is correctly structured over your blade, it is difficult to move my point aside, right? Because I'm supporting the edge of my blade with my position, okay? So that's the first thing. Second thing is reaction time, yeah? If if you if you are lying in wait to parry or to parry my lunge, then yes, maybe. But if it if we have to take your two tenths of a second reaction time into account, a well executed lunge, which is, doesn't take very much time because it doesn't travel very far, right, should land before you have a chance to parry. The thing is, this can work to some extent if you have a lunge that actually like hits before the foot touches the ground. Yeah. Or, or if you... so, or, and, or, and or even... or even Yeah. Normally the lunge will, will hit sort of slightly before or as the front foot hits the ground. Yes. So this is basically um, um, like, like you would experience it in modern Olympic fencing as well. So... But, but yeah, uh, but it's a much shorter lunge. So it takes less time. Yeah. There are different... Um, you have a few ways to tweak things here and there. Like uh, the step length, as you mentioned, is one thing. Yeah. If you take a step at all, because if, if, if you do couple ferry, you also can like lean back and then just push your body forward without moving a step. This, this is a quite a quick thing. But um, the interesting thing is, if you do a lunge that basically hits and, and thereby like finishes the tempo before the yeah. foot lands, um, counts maybe only just as one tempo until the hit, but it has a second tempo where it actually lands, or a, a tempo of recovery, if you will, or something like that. Uh, okay, well, I would say the tempo of recovery is what happens when you come back. But okay, just it's worth just thinking about the, the theoretical tempo of rest in between two motions, right? Mm. So in the theory of tempo that is kind of popular in the early 17th century, right, between two motions lies a tempo of rest, Okay which means that there's no such thing as a parry, riposte, and two tempo. Because there's a parry, it's a tempo, tempo of rest, and then a riposte. But anyone who's actually done it knows that the parry and riposte, even if it is two tempi, there is no moment in which the sword is actually stationary. Right? It's boom. It's, it's, it's not in one tempo because it goes left and then it goes forward, or it goes right and then it goes forward, as opposed to going diagonally forward as you would with the parry and riposte in a single tempo. But, and there may be, I don't know, if you, if you've got a really high spec slow motion camera, there may actually be technically a tempo of rest there. I don't know. But the subjective experience of it is, it is two motions, right? Ba-boom. And there is no tempo of rest in between. And that's exactly what's described by Capoferov, where he says, you know, the parry repost has, there's the parry, which is one motion, and the repost, which is a second motion. He doesn't say it's a, Parry and repulsive three tempi, he says it's a parry repulsive two. Uh, in, in my experience, I've, um, even, even if I try to, to say, be really, really fast with my lunch, and I think I, I really have like uh, control over the opponent's weapon, so the stranger mm-hmm. shouldn't be a problem. Uh, I found that even if I go really, really fast, really, really explosively, um, like leaping forward almost like mm-hmm. uh, harnessing all what I've learned in uh, Olympic saber fencing basically. Right. Um, 
it still might not be enough. And and to me, this was um, it made absolute sense what uh, Fabre says. So he he says that um, the danger is considerable. I can't do it like in in one motion because it would be too long. It, it uh, he says in the way he does the strike from the, the measure he describes and um, with the idea of like for instance finishing the lunch with the touch and um, the foot making contact for instance as opposed to having first the touch and then the foot landing um, he says that the opponent would still have time to do something against it and it's um, and th- this is my interpretation of my um, approach to martial arts um, I should only commit to an action if I'm very much certain that it will succeed. Sure. So I, sh- I shouldn't be lunging at someone if there's a chance that they um, destroy it right. or even and, to, to do and, suicide counterattack. Yeah, and this is why the usual thing is once you've got into measure window stringering, your opponent is forced to move. And it's that motion that is your tempo to strike. So in Cabafera, it's usually your opponent's disengage. Yeah, okay, so but, but this is like the, the easier option. So, so I think the interesting yeah. thing is how, how does the system work if, if you have this um, this lurking fencer who's just waiting for you to launch so he can just displace it. Okay, here's something else that's worth taking into consideration. Okay, People holding sharp swords tend to be a lot more hesitant than people holding blunt ones wearing fancy masks. Hmm. Right? Not always true. Sometimes the fear makes people rash. Um, but you... It is not uncommon for people who are holding a sharp sword and facing a sharp sword to be much more cautious about whether they commit to anything or not. And when they do commit, they tend to commit to a shorter action. Okay. Because the consequences of failure are death. Right. So, so that actually makes Fabris's stuff even more interesting. Now, before I forget, there's this section from Fabris has reminded me of plates 17 and 19 from Capoferro, which are the Scanso del Piedrito and the Scanso della Vita. Right? The Scanso del Piedrito, your opponent attacks, your, your string on the outside, they disengage and strike on the inside. As they do that, you step your front foot sideways out of the way and you stab them. And in the Scanso della Vita, it has the same beginning and when they disengage and attack by all, for all intents and purposes the same way, you instead of moving your front foot out of the way, you move your back foot out of the way, right, and stab them in the, in the throat or whatever at the same time. Okay, which begs the question: Why would you do one or the other, right? Because there's nothing in the text to tell you to do one or the other. But here's the thing: getting into measure involves stepping, which is done usually front foot, back foot, front foot, back foot. And here's the thing: if your opponent disengages to strike as your front foot is in the air or moving. As the front foot lands, it's the back foot that is free to move. And so you're going to hit them with a scanso de la vita, right? But if they are either significantly earlier or significantly later and your, and your back foot is in the air, right? As your, as your back foot is coming up to finish the step, as the back foot hits the ground, it is fixed, right? It's very, very difficult to move a foot in the middle of a step. Yeah. But instead, your front foot is free to move out of the way. So that, to my mind, is 
a sort of a related um a related idea to what Faris is talking about because what you can do with your as your front foot is coming up off the ground is different to what you can do when it's on the ground right and what your how your opponent can use that of course both of these techniques have counters okay and if you if you want your opponent to do a scazzle a piedrito, you better damn well time your disengage so that their front foot is free to move. Right? So from how you describe it, it uh, makes absolute sense to me then. Mm. And the, the interesting thing is this, uh, Fabris' specialty, this um, proceeding with the resolution, like walking mm. with natural steps, oh. even though yeah. most of my students don't call this natural. But, um, <laughs> sure. To, towards the opponent and then just running the rapier through them because you're able to actually book take all the time. Book, book two, exactly. Book two, yeah. Um, this is also like sort of basing this on this idea. So every time one foot is in the air, you have these short resting periods. Or like, so if it's a motion that is so slow that it basically counts as resting. And then you just sort of put one foot down and uh, simultaneously put the other one up. So you just have a very quick, short duration where actually something like with ground contact works. And then you have the, the foot in the air, which means you're able to react. And the, the principle is used also in his, um, Fixed foot launch, so the um, right. uh, this tesa thermo, which refers to the left foot, I think in this case. So the okay, okay. Here's, you know, I said capoeira was idiosyncratic. Okay, in capoeira, the strike of the fixed foot, the front foot is fixed, yeah. neither foot moves, and you basically just throw your weight onto the front leg. Okay, yeah. but in Fabris and in Giganti, the strike of the fixed foot, the back foot is fixed. So instead of passing as a normal person would walk down the street, yeah. right? Your back foot is fixed and your front foot moves. And because that's a slightly unnatural action or a slightly kind of artificial action it is called the strike of the fixed foot. So Cabo is again using a, temp using a term differently to his contemporaries. Yeah. yeah, yeah I absolutely. love Cabo Farrell. He's great. <laughs> he, he is not afraid to be different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, sorry. I didn't point that out. So yeah, for Farrell is, is refers to, to, to the left foot. And these are basically the, the two modes of attack he uh, describes like passing. Which is again like the um, getting very very close and, and wrestling the opponent down if necessary. Yeah. Which I like, by the way, because it makes oh, it abundantly yeah. clear that um, rapier fencing is not just Olympic epee fencing with heavier weapons. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, and um, yeah, and this is a thing with the floating foot, and this has this principle of keeping the the front foot sospeso in aria is something that is used also in a, a German language. Uh, book okay. from the uh, Fabris tradition, probably uh, written by Heinrich von Zumfelder, and was um, recently edited and translated by uh, Rainer van Nord and Jan Schäfer. And there, they use this principle a lot, so you can easily overread it in Fabris, because it's just like uh, this short section in the introduction. Uh, mm -hmm. But they actually use it a lot, and they still use it in um, uh, second half of the 17th century um, transitional rapier lessons, basically. So they have things like you secure the opponent's blade, you lift the front foot, and then um, either nothing happens, you thrust, or immediately after lifting the foot, they do something, you react a certain way, or quite late after lifting the foot, <laughs> immediately before thrusting, they do something, you do something else. And so they basically have three different possible actions, and those not even considering the opponent breaking measure, um, to do. And okay. so in it... That absolutely depends on you lifting that foot relatively slowly. Right? Uh, so, certainly. And, and doing it deliberately. 
Right. Okay. Yep. I'm lifting my foot up. I'm thinking about lunging. So this is not like an explosive, exploiting a tempo kind of lunge. This yeah. is this is a lunge intended to draw some kind of specific counter response. Exactly. So, so or in a sense, it has to be so for it to be manageable. I mean, yeah. obviously, you can still do this quickly because it's. Um, I think the making your decision is a pretty straightforward thing. So you either have your plan A, and if they do something, you just do plan B, but you're not like, you don't have to wait. That's the interesting yeah. thing. So you, you, you still proceed, but you have like this um, this short floating phase, basically. Or, yeah. uh, the foot is literally floating, but you still have this sort of transitional phase where you're resting and either something happens and you react to it or not. So you can do it very quickly. But you're absolutely correct. It's not like um, you can do an Olympic fencing. You do a very long, explosive lunge. And because the weapons are so light and you can handle them with your wrist easily, you can do like a last-second defense thing in between, yeah. which wasn't planned. So that's uh, that's the interesting thing. And in this uh, Heinrich von Unzufelde text, which itself is, I think, also like early or first half of the 17th century, um, they call this um, uh, a particular secret in fencing, keeping the front foot in the air. And I think this might help in understanding why I've never seen any other rapier, uh, Italian rapier teacher do it like that. Um, so they suggest that this way of fighting, this way of preparing an attack, is nothing that you find everywhere. Well, sure. It, it, is, it requires a very high level of skill, and it requires you to be completely in control of yourself. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, one of the hardest things about teaching, particularly modern sport fencers, how to do rapier is getting them to get all of their weight on the back foot. Right. And the thing is, you can't do any of that floating foot stuff if your weight is 50 50. You have to have your weight entirely on the back foot. It, it, it sort of depends. I mean, if, if you, if you flip into the glossary of the uh, Tom Leone translation of um, okay. Fabris, he does, uh, he does give an illustration of how he interpreted that. Um, so there are two photos of it. And he actually, he really leans backward when lifting the front foot. But, um. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> the thing is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like 15 years old or so. I don't know how it goes yeah, nowadays. Sure. But, um, I, th I think it don't really do that because, I mean, you make this decision in a split second and basically you can already f fall forward and just, yeah. um, react depending on the situation. So, um, yeah. we don't really move anything else. What is important is, of course, that the rest of the body remains still. That is something we find in yes. the sources. So you just move front foot first and then you react. And, to it. and both Cabaferro and Fabris bang on about your weight being on your left foot. Sort of, but, but a couple of error, it's much more weight on the, on the, on the rear foot. So, in Fabris, uh, you have it partially, but it's actually. Uh, okay, quite but, relaxed, he, he, but he explicitly talks about it here in, in the section that we just. That we yeah, just yeah, 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 you have it more. Think, but, but, but it's, yeah. I think it's still more severe in, in Capo Ferro, for instance. Uh, okay. J judging by the I, uh, I illustrations. Think, I think, no, I think what it is, is that in Capo Ferro, it's done all the time. And in Fabris, it's done specifically for this. Okay, so for example, okay. the safe way to gain the Missouri Strata is to first ensure that you are in a strong counterguard. Then establish the weight of your body upon the left foot. So it may not already be there in your counterguard, yeah. but you have to get it there before you can cautiously lifting the right foot, the right one to move forward before you can pick up your, your front foot. Now the Cabaferro, of course, is already on the left foot. Hmm. Yeah, this could be an explanation. I mean, in general, uh, Fabulous is very easy on the knees and much more uh, intense on all of this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, Fabulous doesn't, doesn't help my lower back any. Um, but I, my legs are used to Capofaro now. So. Okay. 
Well, well, I'm lucky. I got my legs um, trained in like 15 years of sports fencing and having like 45 minutes of footwork at each session and so on. Ah, that really does help. Um, okay, so are there any other Capoferroan uses of the term tempo that you need to discuss before we finish up? I'm pretty confident that uh, we've covered it, or, or at least I think that I sort of got the gist and um, mm -hmm. to come back to the original idea why I wrote to you in the first place. Um, I think mm -hmm. the explanation I've, I've written together for my video makes sense. And if not, then future scholars of uh, Italian Renaissance rapier are free to criticize it and uh, come up <laughs> with other ways to do it. So it was basically okay. just uh, I wanted to have, because I'm not a Capoferro person, I wanted to, to make sure that I'm not talking complete nonsense or uh, do one of those typical mistakes of not having read uh, the last but one chapter where these things are explained in more detail. And I thought <laughs> I, I'd ask one person that I knew was doing Capoferro, and that was you. So sure. thank thank you very much for uh, discussing this with me. Oh, that's my, my pleasure. It's, you know, I can get together and, and talk the minutiae and arcana of, of fencing terminology anytime. Um, really, okay. So we didn't we didn't get into contratempo at all. Are you comfortable with that? It should be fine. I mean, contratempo is like um, going into the tempo where they do something offensive. If I got this correctly, so it's yeah, um, yeah, they they attack and you strike. Yeah. Which so, is really pretty much every action in the in Calaferris practice hmm. is really kind of contratempo according to his own terms, but he doesn't actually describe them as contratempo. If I remember rightly, he puts contratempo on, he talks about contratempo explicitly on plate 11. Let me just check that and make sure I'm not talking bollocks. Uh, uh, yeah. Plate 11, I think. Yeah, you'll be able to strike him in contratempo during his approach. There you go. Um, so it's, it's worth just kind of reading through plate 11 to make sure you've got contratempo nice and solid. Okay, I'll give this a, a read uh, in a moment. Yeah, I mean, it was always interesting that it's basically, I mean, uh, as a trained fencer, I... Well, in, in my understanding, and in, in my overly theoretical, and you still have to train properly to make it work uh, approach to, to fighting. <laughs> um, I mean, every action you do uh, is in a tempo. So contra tempo is just this particular idea of they attack you and use that tempo to, to attack right. them. But if they do a disengage, um, which is not per se offensive, uh, you can use that as well. And still the idea of using their movement. And if they rest for some reason, you can advance. So uh, resting is a bit difficult, basically because your tempo is as long as their reaction time, if you will. Um, but um, it also is like going into tempo. And that's what I like about it, because nothing in your fencing should be like arbitrary or unwillingly it's <laughs> done. So right. theoretically, so the ideal fencer um, does everything deliberately. Every short movement of their weapons, of their body, when they uh, lift a foot, when they put it down should be done in the right moment with the certainty that it will succeed. Yeah, and that absolutely is the art. <laughs> it's not necessarily always the practice. Yeah. But uh, it's you a nice point of reference, I think. I mean, why, yeah, yeah, why and, do you need and, ideals uh, just to, to have something right, exactly. to, to strive for? Yes, exactly. It, it is a worthy ideal to strive for. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cornelius. 
You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Emilia Skirment about historical martial arts and virology. She is a virologist and a historical martial arts instructor. And yes, we talk about bats and viral plagues and things like that, because, well, if you're talking to a virologist, you shouldn't waste the opportunity. But we also talk about all sorts of other things too, perhaps a little bit more on topic for this show. Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. And of course, if you've particularly enjoyed this episode, do send it to a friend so they can enjoy it too. Nothing beats a personal recommendation. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week. Music.